0: Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the People You Should Meet podcast with me, Brett Christoffel, introducing you to interesting, effective, and sometimes creative folks of all kinds. Thank you for joining us, and now enjoy People You Should Meet. Howdy, y'all. It's Brett Christoffel with People You Should Meet. Today, my guest, you may not know him. uh, His name is Joe Milam. He is the CEO of Angelspan, and he spent his career in the investment world beginning as a stockbroker with E.F. Hutton, and then he moved into successfully uh, joining and then taking over a family office. Currently, he owns and operates AngelSpan. Like I said, he bringing long overdue innovation to how we fund innovation. Joe, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a treat. Glad you're here. We're going to start with a few basic questions, and we'll move into the business
1: side. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Northern California, outside Sacramento, um, started, I think, kindergarten in Sacramento, and then uh, the family moved just to the suburbs of Sacramento, up towards the foothills and towards, directionally towards Lake Tahoe, and and that's where I spent, you know, grade school and high school. College was Northern California, um, north of Sacramento, and and uh, so, yeah, largely Northern California. I wasn't born there, but that's where I was largely raised. And you've been in Austin how long? Nine years.
0: Nine years, Okay. All right, great. And did you have an idea when you were a kid? what
1: You wanted to be when you grew up? Oh yeah. Oh, I was part of that generation. I'm 61, and I was part of that generation that was raised on uh, the 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 space race. And so I wanted to be an astronaut. I actually went into all the way into college. I wanted to be an astronaut. Really? And yeah. did
0: you just did that just change once you got into college, and uh, there are other things to distract you, or or what?
1: Yeah. Well, I I, I went in as an engineer um originally also to play football i was reasonably successful football player and had some colleges circling after my junior year and and then after my second or third concussion my senior year um the i was out half the season and so the scholarships went away And this school that friends of mine had gone off and played football at they were recruiting me to come up there to play and, and i knew i could walk on um and uh, they didn't have scholarships. It wasn't a very fancy football program, but I could play in, enough to get it out of my system and and um, pay for the education myself. I didn't have the luxury of a family that could afford a, an education, but I was going to play some football and then transfer. Uh, I had planned to UCLA, who had a very good aeronautical engineering program to be an astronaut. But when I got to Chico, I was a civil engineer. They didn't have aeronautical. And I found that I just didn't like the lab work loved the lectures chemistry and physics and all that stuff was all easy i took in high school and, and tri, you know a calculator. i loved all that stuff but i didn't like being in the lab And i saw the the engineering curriculum the, the further along i got the more it was gonna be lab work and i realized this was gonna be hell <laughs> and so i just took a semester off went undeclared and and took some business classes because math was always easy mm-hmm. and um i just found that i just had real natural game in in the world of finance, so that's what I ended up being being a finance major and and have been basically doing it ever since. Wow! What about uh, when
0: you were growing up? Uh, favorite
1: food? Uh, Dungeness crab.
0: Okay. Uh, is that like steamed? Oh uh, no, you boil
1: it. Okay, you know, like you
0: do with lobster. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about um, a favorite band? Oh, oh that's easy. Leonard's is it. Leonard oh, yeah. Skinner. oh yeah <laughs> leonard skinner made it all the way out to california
1: no i never seen them but uh, they were my favorite i used to listen to uh skinner's albums to get fired up for football games and anything anytime i still do to this day i'm still a big leonard skinner fan give me three steps i think is set right oh, oh that's one of them but there's it, their their music ages so well um tuesday's gone um there's just they've got melodic songs, of course, the famous Freebird. Um, Sweet Home Alabama, Give Me Three Steps, I Know a Little, uh, That Smell, Saturday Night. Um, I'll uh, see. Special. No. Saturday night special. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I had Saturday night fever in my head, but I knew that wasn't it. <laughs> but yeah, oh, their 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 music is is it ages so well and it's so legitimate. Um, and they were really proficient and really disciplined in their craft. I mean, they, they rehearsed like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was, if you've watched the documentary, uh, Muscle Shoals it's talked about it, uh, at length there that they, when they were first going in the first time in a recording studio, they were like a band that was, you know, almost a decade old because they were so polished because Ronnie Van Zant, the founder was such a taskmaster in, in the amount of rehearsal time they spent in. Um, no, it's, it's quite good. And it shows up again, it shows up in the quality of music over time. Awesome. What a great answer. Would never have guessed. Who <laughs> knew?
0: <laughs> that's why you do this. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Hey, uh, I know, I understand that money or numbers rather was your thing. So that got you into, you know, finance and that, but becoming a, uh, a stockbroker and getting into that world,
1: what was that like? Yeah, it was, well, it was a natural progression. I actually, um, I had a brokerage account in college and I just had a natural inclination. If I knew what a hedge fund was, I probably could have launched a hedge fund in college because I just had game and I had people giving me money. I was a sophomore, junior in college and I just had a natural gravitation for securities analysis. And I'd spend most of my time in the library and on weekends, my old college roommate still teased me out. Sophomore year, I was reading the wall street journal on Friday evenings while everybody else was going off to party. <laughs> um, so I was a finance nerd. And um, I, I, Studied and said, okay, how do I take this as a career? And and that was I stockbrokers, or so I thought at the time. And so I studied to see what it took to be a stockbroker and um uh interviewed and and with a lot of them while I was in college to understand it, do my homework. And then and my my first finance professor, that really was an inspiring professor, even after I left his class, he kept challenging me because he saw I I had game and he gave me special tasks and was really pushing me. Mm -hmm. Uh, he actually left teaching and went to EF Hutton. And so when I was moving in the wine country of Northern California in Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. And so when I was moving there, cause I did take winemaking in college as well. And my college sweetheart who I married, she too took the same two courses I did. And, and so we both had time kind of game and wine. So we chose to relocate to the wine country. And, um, I'd always had my eye on the brokerage industry, but I thought at 23 years of age, I was too young, but I went and met with my old college professor. Who's the only person I knew in Santa Rosa. We just moved there for the wine country proximity. Mm-hmm. And, um, he said, you ever thought about working here? And I thought I'd love to. So I did some, actually some cold calling for him just to make some bucks while I was trying to, I was applying to banks for bank jobs. I mean, that was the my naivete. You know, I I didn't know what, what path to go down and I didn't think I could get a stock brokerage, but he, I was so successful at it that he showed the results to his boss and they hired me. Wow. Yeah. Well, that worked out pretty well, didn't it? Yeah, it was really something. I mean, I, I'll never forget it. He, uh, I would call people at night towards a seminar that the company was sponsoring around some investment product that they were trying to get potential investors to come in and here and learn and maybe invest. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a call list and a bunch of three by five cards or five by eight cards. And, um, and he paid me whatever five bucks an hour just to make the calls uh, on his behalf. And the next day I would bring in and show him the results and he'd see all these notes. How did you get all this information? I'd have their net worth, I'd have their available investable cash. I mean. And said how did you get all this I said people just told me I asked and they told me I just had it turns out a natural um ability to to get people to to trust me and it was something that served me well through because it's it's not misplaced but it's apparently it just kind of came through even the phone much less in person you know mm-hmm. uh, and obviously it came in handy when I end up joining that investment firm later on after I left Hutton but um it just it came through the phone it turned out so when you joined,
0: uh, now I didn't know what this term was until more recently, uh, have a family office. Why don't mm-hmm. you explain what a family office typically is? For folks yeah, who don't know.
1: Well, the firm I joined would be more accurately described as a multifamily office, as opposed okay. to a single family office, but right. it, it, they're both very, very similar. Um, the brokerage industry is called by the industry, the the sell side, meaning you're selling investment products or securities to the investors. And and when you, even when you have a client that has bought stocks from you or mutual funds or what have you, or bonds, you still have to call them and make a recommendation. They give the approval, you do the transaction, you're paid a commission. So you're selling securities. In the family office or multifamily office, that's called a registered investment advisor or the buy side. And in that relationship, the investors trust you with their money And they sign an agreement to turn over discretionary control of investing their money. Mm -hmm. And you have limited power of attorney and full discretion. And so you just, they're hiring you to make the investment decisions and build the portfolios. And you report to them and you're you're paid typically a percentage, a fee that's a percent of the value of their portfolios. Mm -hmm. So your incentives are aligned. Whether you buy a lot or don't buy a lot, you make more money when their portfolio goes up and you make less money when their portfolio goes down. And that's called the buy side. So you're buying investments on behalf of these investors that have engaged you, pay you a fee, and then give you the discretionary control. And a single-family office is where a very wealthy family has a staff to just do it with their money, and you handle all their money. And oftentimes that can also lead to advising on estate planning and and working with uh, their tax people. And so you're sort of a coordinated team to handle their financial affairs. A multifamily office is where multiple families give you Either most or all their liquid assets, their investable assets, um, or and in some cases a, a, a portion, where you're just they give you a little bit because of your particular investment expertise or investment style. Our firm was our clients trusted us with all their money, um, and I was a philanthropy consultant. I helped them give it away for those that wanted to be more active and more thoughtful and how and who and how they gave money to. Um, I got involved in very elaborate estate plan structures and advice and stuff, even though. They didn't pay me by the hour or anything. It was all just sort of part and parcel of the service we provided.
0: And so the, those are, there are actually more of those in existence than people would think. I was really surprised, you know, as far as multi or single family offices.
1: Yeah, it's, it's unfortunately, and sadly, it's become a little bit overused. It's become fashionable to call yourself either a single family office or a multifamily office. And, and I'm a real stickler on that. Um, that definition itself, because Again, uh, a, a the first family office was a single family office, and it was it was the formation of what was called Wilmington Trust to manage the Dupont family wealth, and that's where you hire a team of outside professionals to handle and run the affairs, experts, if you will. There's a lot of people today that um, don't have, hire a staff. It's still run by the typically the patriarch. Um, the, but the wealth creator, oftentimes the man, or even if it's a wealth that was inherited or, or uh, created by the, the spouse, the female, uh, the matriarch, if you will, the male ego loves to claim to be an investor, and so the husband will take over and say, "Well, I'll run our family office." Well, that's not really a family office; <laughs> that's, that's a hobby. But <laughs> there's—I'm going to guess, and this is speculation, but sure. I've been called this this world for a long time, and I'm going to guess. of those folks that claim to be a family office are of that that model, where it's actually the patriarch claiming they have a family office because he knows how to invest money because he either made it, inherited it, or by God, his ego demands him to make the claim.
0: Okay. Well, is to to speaking to that, what is what is like one of the biggest mistakes that investors make? You've been involved in this long enough, and I'm sure there's one or two uh, pitfalls that people fall into. What, what would those be, or that
1: be? You're going to limit me to limit me to one or two? No, you you know you. How about a top whatever? <laughs> well, well, all of the mistakes, and there are myriad, are all the result of. Um, what I affectionately label the seven deadly sins—the emotions that inject themselves into the process of allocating our capital or making investment decisions—greed is one of them. Mm-hmm. Fear is another. Ego, right? With the, you can just go down the line of the seven deadly sins. Envy. These are all things that, unfortunately, have an outsized influence on investment decision making. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's imperative to have outside professionals who are hired to separate as many of those and they're, as, they're, as part of their fiduciary sure responsibilities to, in fact, mitigate those because their emotions from the process
2: mm-hmm. as
1: a professional. Um, when it's a family or an individual that's making these decisions, either with their own money, just because they're trading their own account through E-Trade or Schwab or whatever else, or now what, Robinhood? Um, it's always those, you know, Fear or greed, uh, envy—all those sorts of things—that influence just bad decisions that result in either pursuing something out of greed and, and or a gambling mentality and outcome. Um, fear of missing out—that's where fear is one of the biggest prop- uh, uh, impacts—is fear of missing out, mm-hmm. going along with the crowd because you don't want to miss out. Everybody's doing it. It's unbelievably influential. And again, it has nothing to do with the amount of money. That the investor has, um, how long the money has been in the family through however many generations. We're all human beings, and we're all susceptible to these things. And and, and it's particularly bad as it relates to investing because you can absolutely see the behavior, and then you can actually measure the the uh, negative impact in the form of really bad financial outcomes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know those same emotions influence so many of our decisions throughout our day and our life, but it's the outcome the negative outcomes are very rarely as measurable as when it's actually manifested through investing, because you can see the results in the fluctuation of the dollars Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or the stock price or the asset values that, that you've uh, been influenced to buy by some or or several of those seven deadly sins or those emotions. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the nature of the human condition, but it's particularly relevant with money because of that immediate measurability. Okay.
0: what, What uh, when it comes you mentioned FOMO, you know that whole fear of missing out. Um, Is there also a play when it comes to uh, people getting in to an investment or being the first to invest, kind of thing? The whole waiting to follow someone else in, as opposed to
1: yeah, that's particularly relevant in the uh, startup investing world or venture capital world, if you will, Um, and that's a function less FOMO. And, and by my observations, and I've been studying this world for 30 plus years, um, the venture world and, and angel world. Um, it's more as essentially a tacit admission that that person that's making that decision, but needs to see somebody else move first. And again, VC say this all the time. We don't lead rounds, but tell me when you get a lead and I'll follow. And angels are particularly consistent in this fashion. It's, Literally, the test admission—they actually don't know what they're doing. They're trying to wait for some degree of FOMO to rationalize their decision, and 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 the claim of somebody else invested, ergo, it's a good deal. Ergo, now I can jump on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Um, that is stunningly prevalent in the world of investing in startups. And quite frankly, what well, we're building a solution to hopefully mini- mitigate and if not eliminate. And what is it? What is it you're building there at AngelSpan? Well, we built, um, I and I hate to use buzzwords, but I we don't fit in the easily messaged category like an Uber for or Amazon for or whatever <laughs> else, right? Um, so I have to fall back on the buzzword of solution or platform. And it's a platform and solution because it's both the technology we've designed and had built, but also um, the expertise that I and my team bring that lots of investment expertise to bring important innovation to the very process of funding innovation. And what do we mean by that is process is the important word here. How can you optimize on the decision-making process, the capital allocation decisions, the portfolio architecture of the venture fund itself? Mm -hmm. How do you build a proper venture portfolio? And what are the tools you need to be able to do so? And what information do you need to be able to do so? That's what is all encompassed in our platform solution. Um, the first thing we built was um, and I'll, I'll tell a story to try and uh, try and illustrate it in a, in a clear light is when when I ran the investment firm, we did our own securities analysis and we built portfolios for wealthy people. And that's what they paid us to do. And we we're very good at it. We had a very good track record. Um, and but in the process of doing so, doing our own securities analysis, we never had have the managements of Intel and Cisco and General Electric or Ford Motor Company parade to our office and come pitch us on the company (laughs) so we can meet the management Mm -hmm. and decide on whether we wanted to buy the stock and put it in our client's portfolio. Right. We didn't have to have that. And if we're to use that sort of FOMO follow mentality, even if we did have them do that, we still didn't have to look around and see who else was buying the stock before we bought the stock and put it in our client's portfolio. And the, the core reason is we had data and we knew what to do with the data. Um, The reason we had data is publicly traded companies since 1933 after the 29 crash, the SEC was formed in 1933 that established the first standardized reporting requirements if you want to be a publicly traded company. It's called the 33 Act or the Securities Act of 1933. And and the act itself literally was to establish standardized uh, uh, reporting requirements. And then the SEC was formed to enforce that of publicly traded companies. So that's the first thing we built with AngelSpan is the first public company-like or 33 act-like investor relations for startups to establish standardized reporting, monthly updates, quarterly reports, just the basic things. So you can have that sense of standardization that then allows for better and more thorough securities analysis based on data because you now have standardized data from their standardized reporting. So that's the first thing we built. And um, a component of that, because of the IP that we license that structures our investor relations, um, we're able to produce Wall Street quality performance analytics on our very clients that are paying us to produce their monthly updates and quarterly reports. So they're letting us inside to see what's going on. And by being inside and because of the IP, we can also track their performance against this rigorous framework. And so not only are we producing the first 33 act like investor relations and reporting, but also the first Wall Street quality performance analytics, securities analysis, and that's the Angel's Court Angel Span service. And then the second piece we built is called our Legacy Funds Division, which is to oversimplify, it's a it's a, a venture fund in a box. It's more accurately described as a turnkey asset management platform or a venture temp. Um, but it's a platform, a dashboard, a toolkit, and, and, a, and an assembly of other partners we have to incorporate. Like a venture fund administrator, accounting firms to do the K ones and the tax reporting, law firms to do the the the, the legal documents to form a venture fund and to, and the templates and and the uh, the term sheets for the startups that get funded through the fund. Those are all our partners and the team, if you will. But we built a dashboard that captures those analytics that AngelSpan provides on the individual portfolio companies, so that the Ultimately, that our licensees, which are the general partners or maybe family offices that want to run an institutionally rigorous, thoughtful impact strategy, <laughs> um, they can license our platform. And we license it for free um, and help them use that dashboard and run a venture strategy like I used to manage money from a computer screen. Mm-hmm. Never meeting the management, never talking to Wall Street analysts. never well, talking. of information built in because you have what you need to make good sound consistent objective unemotional investment decisions just based on results based on facts and based on data versus based on biased observations emotions fear greed fomo fill in the blank so a smarter way to invest yeah we we are our fancy little marketing tagline is better information from the startups and available to the investors a better investment process, proper diversification, proper risk management, laced into the design of our legacy funds platform. And then the results is better outcomes for both the startups and the investors that are investing as limited partners through our licensees fund. Better information, better process, better outcomes. Wow, what's not to like? Well, um, if you are one of the conventional folks who thinks they can spot a winner, and likes to be part of a FOMO cool kids club, then um, they don't like the fact that we're sort of like taking the punch bowl away from the party because it's all those emotional things as to what draws a lot of them, and oftentimes ego and greed being being the two of them. So we're sort of eliminating the fun stuff, the punch bowl from the party to be more rational, thoughtful, objective investors versus participants in what I call the, the financial frat party of, of venture capital.
0: That's good, Joe. Financial frat party. Yeah. I think I'm reminded of Animal House for some reason. That's uh, not far off. Um, okay. So, what uh, it sounds awesome, by the way, and people can find out more at angelspan.com.
1: Is that right? Yeah. Or okay. go at angelspan.com. You can email me for more information. Yeah. Okay. What's the most challenging part of what you do? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say focus. You know, being in the seat of a startup founder, and this is not unique to me. It's sort of cliche, but absolutely true. You're, you know, the metaphor I always use is it's like you know, that old image of the the the, um, the magicians or performers that would spin plates on sticks, uh-huh. right? And they go around and get them going, and they, you know, being a, a CEO of a startup is like spinning twelve plates at once. You got to keep them all spinning, right? Yeah. And you just can't spend enough time on any one thing. One thoughtful afternoon, just cogitating on something or methodically spending time on something. You're just dealing with stuff that's coming at all the time. And that is the most, it's fun. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's juggling is fun. You know, I actually learned how to juggle a number of years ago and and juggling's fun. It's hard, but it's fun too. Mm-hmm. So It's, it's both, both sides of the same coin, but it is the biggest challenge. And then the second biggest challenge, but this is again, not unique to anybody that's trying to bring something that's new and or innovative to a marketplace. Is getting people just to think themselves, just to read something, just to actually use their critical thinking brain to to embrace it. Um, what this innovation, the implications of what the innovation might be, and the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. Getting people just to read something has just been stunningly difficult, and to use their critical thinking side of their brain when I when presented with research, objective analysis, data. It's remarkable how uh, how difficult that's been. And That's been a real eye opener. Are you, with the whole
0: recent debacle at Sequoia, um, you've and watched, mm-hmm.
1: I'm sorry? Oh, and their investment FTX, yeah. Yeah,
0: and and you've seen these this happen time and again in different ways over the years. Yep. Um, is the bad behavior ever going to shift? Um, I mean, you know, because I thought, you know, they put in more oversight after they realized something and then, what do you? what's your take on all of this? Because this, you're much closer to this than I'll ever be.
1: Yeah, and I, I've seen, again, you can't, there's a phrase that uh, is credited with P.T. Barnum. No one ever got poor underestimating the intelligence of the American public. And because there are a lot of, let's just say, ill-informed investors that also themselves are motivated by greed and other things, there's always going to be people willing to behave that way to fuel that appetite, quick buck sort of stuff. So there, unf- unfortunately, the very, very nature of of again the human condition and investing in general is always going to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, the media is also un- the unwitting accomplice in they love salacious headlines. Either you know in startup land or venture, it's unicorns and all that, or the tragic stories of FTX and now Silicon Valley Bank. So they just need content, salacious content, good or bad. And that does draw out that behavior out of human beings participating. So the answer your question quickly is, no, we're never going to eliminate it um, because it's just the nature of the human condition. But certainly in the world of, of how we fund innovative company startups, we need to be better at at least professionalizing it so we can lessen it a lot more. Because even in the public markets where there's lots of regulation, there's still a lot of bad actors, right? You can't eliminate bad actors, right? Um, but you can minimize it. And most importantly, for the um, unwitting victim, investing victim, you can protect them better. There's still a lot of investors that I found even when I was managing money. And even before that, I saw it when I was at EF Hutton. There's a lot of investors that want to be sold something because that's their way of abdicating their responsibility of actually doing the thinking themselves, Hmm. right? To me, I've always said that investments should always be bought, not sold. But if they're being bought, that means the buyer is an informed buyer and went through the process of doing proper research. There's a lot of people that are too lazy to do that,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: not qualified, lazy. Um, And so that's, again, just the nature of the beast, but we just have to be better. Because it's too important, innovate funding startups is too important to keep practicing what has been a grossly unprofessional um, process. Well, and and I think I've heard you speak before that there's really no certification,
0: there's no governing <laughs> body that actually shows people how to become great wow. at helping people invest or any. It, it, tell us about that.
1: It's the last financial services industry that I've been able to identify where there is zero professional standards and requirements to call yourself a general partner in the case of the venture industry. There's no body of knowledge they have to study. There's no continuing education requirements. There's no licensing. There's zero barriers to entry and zero accountability as a result. Hairdressers have more professional standards and hoops they have to jump through to be a licensed beautician and they can have their license pulled and get kicked out of the industry, or at least operating legitimately in the industry. There is zero standards. The National Venture Capital Association has been a lobbying organization since its formation in 1973 or 74. Um, they've actually protected the their member members from these sort of professional standards and expectations. What, they're you
0: know? doing a disservice, aren't
1: they? I mean, I would think.
0: That would be they're doing exactly what
1: any lobbying organization does is protect oh. their fee paying members <laughs> to do what
0: they're told by the people who pay them.
1: Just uh, that's exactly right. They're doing their job as lobbyists.
0: Well, you would figure an organization or a group or a, a body of people would say, Let's set some standards in place so we know that everyone coming on the field's got the same level of knowledge or at least a base to play that's... with,
1: especially when you're managing other people's money. One would think. And that's funny you should say that because it's something that we've been working with some, some organizations to establish the first training curriculum. So that then the investors can recognize that that's something they need to do is to expect that level of accreditation before they give somebody money. Mm-hmm. Right now, they can't expect it because there is none. Wow. So they have to do due diligence on the general partner of the firm, you know, one fund at a time. Um, it's part of the inefficiencies and the and the unprofessionalism is just this absence because if there was more standards, then that would empower the investors, particularly the institutional investors, the big family offices, the big pools of money. But even the smaller pools of accredited investors that want to invest in venture capital funds, at least the ability to elevate their own due diligence process, mm-hmm. make it more efficient, but also a little bit more professional than what typically takes place. Wow. Yeah.
0: What do you think, flipping it over to the, let's say the founder side, um, what do you think the biggest mistakes are that founders make when it comes to seeking investment?
1: Well, again, I, I will, founders are just like investors. There's degrees of of sophistication, experience, um, and good intentions. <laughs> so let's presume we're talking about those well-intended entrepreneurs. Um then you have to just look at them through the lens of experience because the more experienced entrepreneurs that have gone through the process more than once realize that A, how they communicate is critical, Mm -hmm. not just in the fundraising process, but prior to and after they've received successful investing. Um, The more experienced ones are more data-driven in their materials they provide in their pitch decks and their communication. Um, They're less about the shiny object, you know, the hyperbole and more about right, the substance, mm-hmm. substance over style.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, a, a little bit more meta um, mistake that's made even with some experienced startups that we've had as clients, is they overlook an important component of the psychological behavior and motivations of investors. And this is specific to um, something called prospect theory. That actually won, was the work that won the Nobel Prize in Economics back in 2002. Or a man named Daniel Kahneman, who is also the father and patron saint of this whole concept of moneyball that mm. people are more familiar with.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But Daniel Kahneman is is the sort of the, the patron saint of behavioral economics and and behavioral finance. But uh, he's a trained psychologist, not an economist or finance financial guy. Even though they won he won the Nobel Prize in economics,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because what the work confirms, which is sort of scientifically confirming sort of human instinct. But it's really important, and entrepreneurs forget this, is that the work confirms that an individual's decision-making in any circumstance, not just financial decision-making, but decisions throughout life and, and other walks of life, the prospects for loss are twice as impactful in their decision-making than the prospects for gain.
2: Hmm.
0: So the, the human condition goes towards the failure as opposed to the
1: success. And Naturally, yeah. Fear us. fear of failure. Hmm. Yep. And in investing, that's really important. Because if you're pitching an investor, you need to spend time and, and, and get their attention and excitement over what could be the very innovation you're trying to bring to the marketplace and need capital to do so. So you got to sell the dream, if you will. And mm-hmm. that's the limbic brain. But the critical thinking side of the brain, as Danny Kahneman calls it, system one thinking and system two thinking. System one is the limbic brain. System two is critical thinking. Um, the fear of the fear component, the prospects for loss, is you need to appeal to their critical thinking brain to show the thoughtfulness in which you de-risk this opportunity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's less about selling the dream and more about you know, the sizzle and more about the stake, whatever form that has to take, <laughs> given the stage of the business. hmm Pardon, I don't have a, a vegetarian equivalent, sorry. It's okay, we make steak from plants, it's okay. Okay, all right, there we go, okay, <laughs> there we go, thank you. Um, And so that's a really important component that's oftentimes overlooked. And, and likewise, or conversely, if it's a highly technical founder and or solution, innovation, technology of some form and, and, and fashion, they oftentimes get too nerdish in the technology Without finding a component beyond just greed, <laughs> financial motivation, sure, for the investor or prospective investor to actually care about this solution being in the marketplace.
2: Mm-hmm. There has to
1: be some limbic engagement of caring about if this were successful and I made money, is it something that's good? Do right. I care about it actually being in the marketplace and have an impact? And, and we're seeing this right now, certainly as of today and yesterday's headlines, with this whole AI chat GPT stuff. You know, Steve Wozniak and Elon Musk both came out with a bunch of other signatories and said, we need to slow down the advancement of AI because the unintended consequences are likely to be out of our control. And they're likely to be negative, much mm-hmm. like if you go reverse the clock and go back and see this whole notion of the mobile phone. Oh, my gosh, it's going to be empowering and it's going to make you give you ac- and, and the and, and the. Um, uh you know, you'd be able to, to, to not use paper maps and, and engage people quickly, and your kids can have quick access to the parents. And parents can all these benefits of the mobile phone, all of which are true. But the unintended consequences of what we've seen the addictive nature of it and the social media and all the other things if we we're to just, just stop today from the time the mobile phone came out to today, you'd probably say that the positive or negative implications probably weighed heavily on the negative. Hmm. The unintended consequences outweighed all those early benefits. And we're seeing that play out right now in in the narrative that's surfacing right now around AI. And that's not a hard conclusion to draw, is that people that wanna monetize their cool new sexy technology and make money bringing this well-intended technology to the marketplace ultimately may or may not care about those unintended consequences and might even benefit from as Facebook did. Facebook's success itself was because of the mobile phone mm-hmm. had come out. And that's why it went so viral as quickly and the manifest the way it did and social media and advertising revenue model and then all the addictive nature that became the bad side, the downside of social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and he still profits handsomely from basically selling drugs, the dopamine drug that comes with that social media quick validation. hmm and so that's, again, the, the, this, these unintended consequences are becoming uh, more important to care about um, in this world of funding innovation because it can't just be for a financial outcome. Because as PT Barnum said, again, no one ever underestimated, got, writ, got, got poor, underestimating the intelligence, but also selling send is a very profitable business. Doesn't make it a good business. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Right. That's a principle that I think has been lost, particularly in this world of venture capital, technological innovation, et cetera.
0: Understood. Uh, One other thing I'd love you to speak to uh, that people may not be aware of, because I know I wasn't for a long time, and that is the advantages of the QSBS treatment 1202 and 1244, I
1: believe it is. Oh, my God. Look at you getting all tax nerdy to your audience. Yeah. (laughs) All right, folks, those of you that might be listening, don't turn this off because we'll try and make tax law sexy. (laughs) Well, it just it
0: blows my mind to this day that I'll still talk with investors and I'll ask them about if they're familiar with it. And like, what's that? What's that?
1: Oh, it's (laughs) it's 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 one of the most stunning oversights in the world of venture and angel and startup uh, startup land, broadly defined. And what makes it awesome? Well, the laws themselves were originally passed, the first one in 1958, the second one in 1993. The first one in particular is Section 1244, QSBS under Section 1244. And it was originally passed in 1958 as part of the Small Business Investment Act. And that act was the very act that launched the venture industry. And tax laws are called fiscal policy tools to stimulate behavior, economic behavior, investment behavior, what have you. And this was passed to stimulate new investment behavior in this new asset class called venture capital. And the way to stimulate it is to lessen the tax sting, if you will, Mm -hmm. make a tax advantage for making this investment decision. And this is used through the opportunity zone legislations and and the uh, years ago uh, accelerated depreciation tax credits and all sorts of tax incentives to mobilize investment capital. Um, And what the law says is if you're willing to be an early investor in startups, they qualify, and it's easy to qualify as a startup. Um, and you're willing to be a part of the first million dollars, that hardest money for oftentimes for startups to raise. And if that startup fails, you can actually take a, a tax deduction that's a better write-off than if you gave the same amount of money that you invested in the startup, if you gave it to a nonprofit and got a 501c3 charitable contribution deduction. It gives you a better financial outcome, meaning it lowers your tax bill more if you invest in a startup you care about and you think might make you some money. But even if it fails, it's still a better financial outcome than if you gave an equivalent amount to a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Now, for impact investors in particular, that's a big deal. Wealthy people give a lot of money away each year already, and they know they're never going to make any money, but they care about the cost. Or they care about getting their name on a building and the ego gratification of saying they care about that cost. Sure. So there's a lot of reasons people give to charity, and it's been well studied that about a third of them are true benevolent intentions, by the way. About two-thirds of them are called consumptive philanthropy, what's in it for me by giving money that's not profit. In the world of startup investing, this is where you can be a benevolent investor or even a greedy investor and be smart by just being aware of and utilizing QSBS and and, and thus being part of that first million dollars. And then the second law, QSBS under 1202, says that uh, if you have a a financial outcome, a positive financial outcome, you make money off this startup. If it took five years or more from the time you invested, and it doesn't have to be just the first million, later funding rounds qualify for this treatment. As long as from whichever round you invested into, there is an eventual exit. Typically a startup gets bought. Um, IPO is a rare outcome. Um, Then you as an individual investor in that startup don't have to pay any taxes on the first $10 million of your profits. Tax-free profits for the first 10 million. Really? and wow. if you were a later stage investor, in, these are all for individual investors. Uh-huh. And even if you're an LP in a, in a venture fund, this all still applies to you in a fund as, as a fund investor. Um, if you invested, let's say fifteen million, uh, a million and a half in a later stage round of a, of a hot deal, and there was an eventual successful exit, it took five years and a day from the time you invested a million and a half, the law says it's either $10 million of profits or 10 times your cost basis whichever is greater. So if you put a million and a half in it, now you have $15 million of tax-free profits before you have to pay capital gains. Wow. So these two laws in combination, lowers the after-tax risk and raises the after-tax returns.
0: And that's just to help stimulate folks to invest in startups
1: to encourage that. To stimulate and reward the investment in innovative companies. That's exactly right. At its core, that's what it's for to stimulate it because innovation entrepreneurship is critical for our economy for all the reasons most people already know that that's listening to this, but how can we be better at it? And how can we do more of it without being stupid, right? Being stupid investors. Well, it seems a whole lot less stupid. There's a whole lot of uninformed at best. We'll leave it at that.
0: Um. Wow. Uh, a lot of information, Joe. What... I hope that was sexy enough for your
1: readers not to have fallen asleep, <laughs> or your lis- your listeners, I, I should say, not your readers. Uh, I'm sure it'll be. A, I'm sure it'll be a mix. Uh, <laughs> I suspect so. When, when
0: it comes to what's your favorite go to snack, Joe? I know you probably don't snack much these days,
1: but oh my goodness, you mean behind, besides all y'all foods? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually need to order more. I have to say that I need to order more. Um, beef jerky okay i love jerky okay. i love sm- i love smoked meats okay i know i i, love- I understand yeah i, I, I love I, smoked meats the sausages the i just it's my and even any cured meats you know salamis and pastrami and uh oh, pastrami is one of my favorite things in the world um is that a snack also avocados i'm a big avocado eater. they're terribly healthy i love the flavor um, and I would, that's sort of my go-to quick snack is avocados actually, now that I'm trying to be better at my diet. Sure. And unlike the, the other products, they love you back.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I haven't, haven't felt that love, uh, overtly, but let's just say, yeah, they're healthy for you. So we'll call it healthy love, right? Yeah. But yeah. No, they're, they're, you know, avocados are great. I, um, uh, one summer I, uh, I had an aunt and uncle that lived in Santa Barbara and they had a lovely home had five avocado trees in their backyard oh wow and these were the big ones i can't remember which were the haas or the biggest ones i mean those were monsters yeah and um oh my gosh and they would literally we'd always listen for that thud when they'd fall off perfectly ripe we'd run out and go make guacamole <laughs> right away so literally we had nothing but fresh completely ripened avocados and i would i would spend summers there for well for really almost two decades, I worked for my uncle almost every summer through high school and college in his business in Santa Barbara, and I'd stay with them, and even growing up, we'd go spend times with my and uncle and a couple of weeks at a time, so I just, you know, those avocados, I just, it's it's ingrained in me. Yeah, what about a favorite animal not to eat? Well, it's oddly enough, it's also my favorite meat to eat, but it's also my favorite animal just to observe and just the majesty is an elk. Elk? I love elk. I always have.
0: Yeah, they're pretty. They I used to go up to Estes Park quite a bit, and they've got just there'd be hundreds or thousands of them. Yeah, hanging out at Rocky so Mountain the, National
1: the Park. The regalness, the way they walk, the the uh, you know the antlers, the way they have to move their antlers as they're moving through you know the, a dense forest. The the just elegance and mag, uh, majest, uh majesty uh majestic uh be, um, movements are I've always been fascinated by them.
0: Understood. What about a book, Joe? that's influenced your life that you would want to k- share with others or a, a movie or just something that you thought, you know, this really impacted me. We throw this out there.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I was recommended, in fact, by my aunt Santa Barbara to read Atlas Shrugged when I was in, uh, I think, uh, late, you know, sixth grade or something, seventh grade, maybe. And um, like many people that have read it, it had an outside influence. Um, it's been recognized by numerous surveys over the decades as second only to the Bible and influencing people. Wow. And and I think it's it's absolutely timeless, you know. Um, the other book, and this is a little bit more nerdish, but it's really 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 important. It's the best history lesson and economics lesson all in one that I've I've ever had. And it's a book called *The Birth of Plenty* by William Bernstein, and it's it's a it's a wonderful history on uh, the four components that that he found were the components in his research as to why. What triggered his interest that ultimately led to the book was in 1820, 21. both England and the United States started creating real wealth almost simultaneously. And real wealth in an economic measure is GDP per capita, Mm -hmm. GDP output per capita, because for as far as recorded time we had, uh, recorded history – GDP of a nation was simply a function of the number of people you had because the amount of any one person could produce in, in economic wealth was pretty much capped because it was largely a manual labor agrarian society. And then in 1820, the Industrial Revolution kick started kicking in, mm-hmm. and both England and the United States simultaneously started creating more real wealth per capita. Why? What were the elements that came together in those two countries? And it was, and he identified four. And then he did a history lesson on all four. and they're they're relevant to this day when you're reading the headlines. And the four components are, a, there needs to be a rule of law mm-hmm. because you need to have the rule of law secures property rights. Okay? All right? If you're mm-hmm. an entrepreneur, you're going to do something entrepreneurial, you don't want the government to come in and nationalize your business and take it over because you got some despotic leader that's going to take the wealth for themselves.
2: Mm-hmm. You got to have
1: the rule of law. So property rights can be secured. This is the whole movement of blockchain is what blockchain is doing is making that process unassailable and even cleaner and more efficient to track the mm-hmm. provenance, ownership problem. Um, the second one was a medium of exchange, a stable currency, a stable medium of exchange. Because as people barter, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to borrow goods and services. You need a medium of exchange to make that whole commerce exchange more efficient. You can look at the headlines of South American countries, typically, or and others, African countries that have a really unstable currency. You have the hyperinflation, mm-hmm. right? That's bad. That's why America's enjoyed the run its head because we've been the fiat currency of global trade. And that's what was allowed for the globalization of trade was that there was a stable currency called the US dollar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you need to have the separation of religion and science. Years ago, even in Europe, if you, you know, Copernicus was looking at the stars, and it was counter to the church doctrine, it was blasphemy, got your head cut off. You've got to decouple, but look at the Middle East, when you still have this orthodox Islamic, you know, extremism dictating so much of the political agendas and economic agendas. They haven't separated, they haven't had their enlightenment period and separated religion from science and government and state and NN. Um, and the fourth one is you need to have the infrastructure for the distribution of goods and services and back then it was the rail system mm-hmm. but also shipping and also in the modern era it's telecommunications internet etc right the distribution of goods and services in whatever form is taking place at that economic uh, window yep. in time mm-hmm. But those are so instructional to look at what's going on in the globe today. Why do we have digital currencies surfacing? And why hasn't they been more widely adopted? A, for one is they're not stable. Mm -hmm. For there to be a proper fiat digital currency, we have to have a mechanism for it to be stabilized. Mm -hmm. So it's not so volatile. And will that ever be Bitcoin? Probably not. It's probably gonna be a basket of different uh, um, digital currencies, probably fiat currencies provided by different countries. And there will probably be some pricing mechanism to stabilize it that'll be linked to the price, the movement of commodities associated with economic output, gold, copper, you know, aluminum, maybe some of these sorts of things that are important inputs, raw material inputs, commodity inputs into real economic activity, not just financial transactions, but real economic production. Sure. Um, So you got to have stable medium of exchange, separation of religion from science and church and state, and you know, all that stuff. Um, the infrastructure um, and um, rule of law. And you can read the headlines today and, and the, the economic volatility is a function of some or all those lacking, even though you've got great raw material wealth and, and natural wealth in South America, they still struggle with a lot of those things. I just saw a documentary. This is a nerd alert for your listeners. I just watched a documentary, it uh, was uh, 20 minutes, on why is Africa struggled economically? given mm-hmm. their natural resources and the sheer size and scope. Why has it struggled? And you can apply some of those four things, but also it has a geographic disadvantage, which I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Even though it's as large as it is, if you look at the coastline and the waterways, they've never been able to participate in in shipping trade. Their rivers are largely shallow. There's no rivers that go deeply inland that you can navigate with with, with big container ships. Mm-hmm. Think the Suez Canal, or think of even the ports of Houston or Seattle or Hong Kong or whatever else.
2: Erie
0: Canal, that's you know, what I was thinking.
1: Mississippi River is you got we've got you know they don't have waterways Actually. that allow because the waterways they do have because the nature of the geography and topography they have waterfalls and get in the way of inland <laughs> shipping.
0: <laughs> that poses a problem, yes
1: it poses a problem. Yeah. They don't have natural inlets or bays or anything in the entire I had It was brand new information for me. That was Never fascinating. Of that,
0: but yeah.
1: I hadn't either, but it goes to the, one of those points. You need to have the ability to distribute the infrastructure for distribution of the goods and services. Wow. And I just saw this today and I thought, my gosh, this is fantastic. Fascinating.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Not and any- that has implications of investing in startups in Africa. Right,
0: it makes sense.
1: Maybe if it's a tangible more good, infrastructure not, to handle. If it's a tangible good, they're not going to have a global presence. It's unlikely to have a global presence because they'll have a a a, a logistics disadvantage right. of shipping.
2: Yeah,
0: hadn't thought of that. Well, it's another good day not to do uh, be doing business there in Africa today. Anyway.
1: <laughs> so anyway, I like I said this is the stuff I nerd out on, but that's why that book was so powerful. Is it yeah. makes. The headline's very real and very logically sound, and it also helps you view even geopolitics and, and, the, and the like in a really interesting way was that book by William Bernstein. It was one of the best books I've ever read. Fantastic. Most helpful.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Joe. Yeah. Uh, and thanks for taking the time to visit with us today. Angelspan.com, right? Yes, sir. And You're on LinkedIn as well?
1: Yeah, awesome. sadly. Thank you for taking the time today, Joe. I appreciate it. Was it was fun. I hope it was worth uh, your listeners' time. Oh, it was. Absolutely. Thanks, buddy. You bet.